Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a sovereign God who occupies eternity. That you're all-powerful and all-knowing. That you are in control of the past and the present and the future. And that because you orchestrate the circumstances of this universe and this solar system and this world and our history and our present and our future, you deserve our trust. Lord, I pray that that's exactly what we would do. That we would know you and love you and trust you and believe you. In Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 31, it says, Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says they shall look on him whom they pierced. The Bible is a book rich with prophecies and there are general prophecies and there are prophecies fulfilled by Jesus and there are prophecies made by Jesus and the Bible contains prophecies about births and cities and nations and individuals. There are what scholars and Bible students call in time prophecies. Prophecies concerning the rapture, prophecies concerning judgment, prophecies concerning the judgment seat of Christ, prophecies about a seven sealed book, prophecies about the marriage feast of the Lamb, prophecies about the second coming. And in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus would say, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. In the law of Moses, the prophets, and the psalm, you may love prophecy, or you may despise it. If you love prophecy, then that means you love at least one-third of the Bible. You see, we devote a great deal of our time to the teachings of the Bible. I teach the Bible, but I've never been more convinced that I don't simply teach the Bible. It's my job to teach people the Bible. And here you are, sitting in your seat, listening on your computer. Maybe someone has given you a CD of the service. And here you are. And you may be a mature believer, or you may be a new believer, or you may be an unbeliever, or you may be a make-believer. You might be a skeptic or a cynic. 
You may be a person who believes that every word in the Bible is true. Or you may be a person who believes that the Bible contains truths and principles and insights and suggestions and regulations and restrictions. And you're listening right at this very moment waiting to challenge the content of the sermon. And you should. You should. You have every right and you have every responsibility to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. You believe that God knows the future in advance, or you don't. You may be listening to hear from the Lord or for some priceless treasure or some nugget of truth, some specific application that will speak to your present circumstances, something that will comfort you, something that will challenge you, something that will change you. And the Gospel of John was written for the express purpose that the reader or the hearer would believe that Jesus Christ is God's Messiah. And as a result of that experience, redemption and forgiveness of sin and hope, Jesus predicted many things. He predicted the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the, the fact that his words would be everlasting, that people in every generation would hear what he had to say. Jesus predicted there would be false prophets and false Christs. He predicted that evil would continue and that there would be a great time of trouble. Jesus made predictions about the manner of his death and who would put him to death and the fact of his death and his resurrection from the dead. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. G.B. Hardy writes, only the supernatural mind can have prior knowledge to the natural mind. If then the Bible has foreknowledge, historical and scientific, beyond the permutation of chance, it truly then bears the fingerprint of God. And the book that you have in your lap or in your hands or in your neighbor's hands is a book that bears the fingerprint of God. You see, the improbability and the impossibility that Jesus Christ is the Lord is only bridged by the possibility of a supernatural God who transcends time and space and history, who knows everything about everything in every circumstance. Look what it says in verse 31. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. John brings attention immediately to the fact the day Jesus died was the preparation day. In the text, the Greek word is Parasukeu. The expression the day before the Sabbath is all one word in the original language. In the Greek language, it's prosabaton. It appears only here in the Greek New Testament. Scholars have long puzzled and debated did Jesus die on a Wednesday? Did Jesus die on a Thursday? Did Jesus die on a Friday? 
Clearly, all of the Gospels agree that he died. And clearly, the traditional weekly Sabbath was from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday. As a matter of fact, in the modern Greek language, the word for the sixth day of the week in the Greek language is the same word, parasuke. The Jewish Passover was always, always, always on the 15th day of Nisan. The preparation day was always, always, always the 14th day of Nisan. It was the day where every observant Jew in the city of Jerusalem, every observant Jew throughout Judea and the Galilee, every observant Jew everywhere circling the Mediterranean rim, every single Jew would use this particular day to remove the leaven from their home. And remember what the leaven is. It becomes a type and a picture of sin. Everything that lives dies. Everything that is alive is capable of being corrupted. And so leaven would become a type and a a picture of that which disturbs and corrupts. And it becomes the perfect picture of sin. And so every observant Jew would remove the leaven from their home. But they were also supposed to remove the leaven from their heart. They were supposed to examine their heart. And look what it says. In verse, the end of verse 31, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken And that they might be taken away. The religious leaders knew the law. A thousand years earlier, even more than a thousand years earlier, Deuteronomy was written by Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22, it says, If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on that tree, but you shall bury him in that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. So out of respect for the law, the religious leaders, the Jews, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they are willing out of respect for the law to disrespect the lawgiver. Spurgeon said, religious scruples may live in a dead conscience. And indeed they can. For a very, very, very long time. It is amazing how religious human beings are capable of being. They're able to observe religious rules and religious rituals and religious celebrations and ignore what it means to have a right relationship with God. To long for the things that matter. Truth. Justice. Mercy. Love. Compassion out of respect for the law, in order to not defile the land, they ask the Roman governor to smash the legs of the people who are suspended between heaven and earth. But the Romans had no such law. If you were 
a Roman person living in the Roman world, in the Roman Empire, a person who was crucified was often left to hang for days. And when the body was removed, it was taken to the garbage heap or the trash heap. It was burned or it was left for the wild dogs and the vultures to consume. But the Lord made a provision for his body and prophecy. And in the law, as a matter of fact, the Mishnah, which is the Jewish scribal law, it makes it clear. And I quote, everyone who allows the dead to remain overnight transgresses a positive command, unquote. In other words, the Sanhedrin was charged by the law and, and then charged by the Mishnah to have two burying places ready immediately for those who suffered the death penalty and weren't buried in the family plot or the ancestral burial grounds. In this case, it was even more important that the bodies not be allowed to hang on the cross overnight, not simply because it was the preparation day and not simply because it was the day before the Sabbath, but it was a preparation day, a high holy day, which would have made it impossible to attend to those circumstances unless the bodies were removed. So the person on the cross, you'll remember that they are suspended and there is a wooden mallet that would have taken Roman nails and pressed them into the wrists. They would have been tied to the the, the cross beam and then their legs would have been tied to the upright beam and then there would have been a small seat for their tail and their legs would have been roped and then nailed to a plate and in order to breathe you would have to literally lift yourself off of your seat your lungs would fill with oxygen and then you would exhale and you had to do it over and over and over again. And what little strength you had, you would have to press from your feet in order to launch your body upward in order to stay alive. And so they were going to take the mallet and they would smash it right below the kneecap. And the shock would cause the shin bone to burst. Blood would come out and typically the person would asphyxiate within a matter of at least three or four minutes. And Pilate doesn't care about these men at all. And so he grants the request of the religious leaders. And then in verse 32 it says, Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. You remember that the Romans chose crucifixion as a state form of execution for the most hardened and for the most wicked. And it was supposed to be a lingering death. And by Roman law, the condemned would hang until they died from hunger or they died from thirst or they died from exposure or they died from exhaustion. And sometimes a person would linger for days under the hot sun and the cool night. And it was supposed to strike fear into the heart of the captured provinces. 
But the thing that you have to understand when you read verse 32, then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and then of the other, that Roman soldiers, if they did anything, this is what a Roman soldier was most noted for. A Roman soldier obeyed orders. You know what's the most remarkable thing? It's not that they were ordered to break the legs of the criminals. The most remarkable thing is that they disobeyed the order to break the legs of Jesus. As a matter of fact, remember what the point is. It's to accelerate death. Look at verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and they saw that he was already dead... They didn't break his legs. The soldiers stopped short when they saw that Jesus was already dead. I'm going to suggest something to you. And you tell me if you agree. Do you think that the life and the words and the demeanor and the testimony of Jesus had an impact on the people who were killing him? There's a little clue that's given to us. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 54. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 54, the writer Matthew writes, So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. That particular scene was popularized in a movie where John Wayne plays the Roman centurion, and he looks odd. Because you want to see, he looks pretty normal on a horse, but giving him a Roman outfit is a little bit of a stretch. And you'll remember in the movie, John Wayne says, Truly he was the Son of God. And you just sort of laugh. Yeah, you do, because you just go, Well, this isn't quite how the Bible seems to indicate that it went. It isn't just the simple repetition of words. There was something extraordinary about this man. And what possible value could be served in smashing the legs of a dead man? In particular, this dead man. But they are, after all, Roman soldiers. And they are, after all, they have a job to do. And in verse 34, look what it says. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water come out. Some scholars suggest that Christ's heart burst. A Roman soldier had what was called a pilon. It was a Celtic leaf shaped spear point that would have been seven to eight inches long and it would have been sharpened on both sides and it would have been in the form of a Celtic leaf and it would have been attached to a long pole and one of the soldiers would have got up where Jesus lies suspended, his dead body hanging on the cross and he would have taken the pilum and slipped it on the left side of his ribcage and he would have perforated the percardium sac. Blood mingled with water would medically account for that phenomenon because remember, he is dead, but everyone who has even a fundamental and a rudimentary understanding of medicine knows that dead bodies don't bleed. Did Jesus literally die? 
of a broken heart. That's what happens when the precardial sac fills with water and blood. And Christians in every generation have seen in this event a picture of the sacraments, the ordinances, if you will, of baptism and communion. The water becomes a picture of the washing of the saint. It becomes a picture of cleansing, of baptism and regeneration. And with the sacrifice of Jesus brings what Paul writes in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by the works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and by the renewing of of the Holy Spirit and the blood becomes a type and a picture of the shed blood when we partake in the sacrifice of Jesus and the water cleanses us. And so it isn't just a medical phenomenon and it isn't just a historical phenomenon. Poets have written about it, maybe one of the most famous passages by a man named Toplady. You've sang it, certainly you have, or you've heard someone sing it. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. That's what's happening. A sacrifice that affects forgiveness. Cleansing. Clearly, the soldier's spear reveals the fact that Jesus really died. And as you're reading the passage and you're sitting in your seat and you're listening to this, it doesn't shock you and it doesn't surprise you that Jesus died. But guess what? In the first century, the most amazing thing and the biggest question that people asked wasn't whether or not Jesus was God. The biggest question they asked is, is he really a man? Is he a really a human being? The Gnostics had this far flung idea that he was a mystic and that his body wasn't real. They had strange ideas that he would walk near the Sea of Galilee and he would leave no footprints because he wasn't really there. And John is going to go to extraordinary lengths to convince the reader that Jesus is really dead. One of the earliest creeds of Christianity is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, where Paul writes and he says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sin according to the Scripture, and that He was buried. And later the Apostles' Creed would affirm that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He died and He was buried. And the Gospel includes a real death for real sin. And a real resurrection and the death of Jesus is the key theme in the gospel. And perhaps the greatest historical fact of human history. The death of Jesus was prophesied in the Old Testament. It was announced by John the Baptist before Jesus ever began his formal ministry. In John chapter 1, verse 29, you'll remember, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus 
mentions his own death in John 3.14. If I am lifted up, it's clearly an image of crucifixion. And he speaks of taking up his cross in Matthew chapter 10, verse 38. And in Luke's gospel, we read in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. What's interesting, that word decease, it's the Greek word Exodus. Isn't that interesting? That's the word. And it's suggestive of the Jews' exodus. Their bondage. And then the Passover lamb. And the sacrificial lamb. There's still a popular theory that circulates among skeptics and cynics. It's called the swoon theory. It goes like this. Apparently, Jesus lost consciousness and was able to feign his own death and fool the Roman soldiers. See, now you're laughing because that doesn't make sense. Are these men who are accustomed to death and understand the difference between a live body and a dead body? But the swoon theory goes even further, that he is taken from the cross, that he has all of the appearances of being dead, but that he makes his way into the tomb. He's loaded down with 110 pounds of spice and an airless tomb, a rock is folded over and a seal is placed and a squadron of soldiers, but Jesus revives from the smell of the spices and he unwraps himself and moves the rock and completely frightens the Roman soldiers and continues to live until he dies a normal human death. Does that make sense to you? At Easter time, I will often read a uh, passage that I found in Christianity Today. It was addressed to a columnist named Eutychus, and it said, Dear Eutychus, on Easter my pastor said that Jesus swooned and that he was revived in the grave and that he came back to life. Sign me bewildered. And Eutychus writes, Dear bewildered, flog your pastor with a cat of nine tails. Beat him till he loses consciousness. Then nail him to a piece of wood for six hours in the hot sun. Then take him down. And then load 110 pounds of spices and wrap him. And then place him in an airless tomb for three days. See how he does. No, Jesus really died. And the testimony of the scripture compels us to believe that it was a real death. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches that Jesus was a real human being. He was born of a human mother. He had a human birth and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger in Luke chapter 2 verse 7. Jesus was brought to the temple to be circumcised. The Bible describes a childhood and a young adulthood and his ministry. And the Bible describes a person who becomes tired in John chapter 4 verse 6, who requires sleep, who asks questions, who displays human emotions and who dies the death of a human being. Jesus experienced growth 
and hunger and fatigue and sadness and tears and death. And look what it says in verse 35. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. Do you understand what John is doing? He is insisting that his, his account is an eyewitness account. That he's telling the truth. That he is the beloved disciple, the skeptic, the cynic, the unbeliever, insists that the account has been tampered with, it's been polluted, it's been strained, or it's entirely false. And John insists his gospel is not hearsay, it is not fable, it is not myth, it is not legend, it is reliable, it is accurate, it is the historical representation of the actual events that took place. And so he gives the reason why he's gone to such extraordinary lengths to give you the story. There will come a time when you won't be able to hear anymore. And there will come a time when you won't be able to see anymore. And there will come a time when you won't sense other people's presence around you. There will come a time that no matter how many times you hear the message of hope, no matter how many times the gospel is explained, no matter how many times the story is presented, you'll continue in your unbelief. But there's time to believe. And that time is now. And John issues the invitation so that you may believe. And what does he want you to believe? The immediate context seems to indicate that John wants the reader to believe that Jesus is in charge of the events surrounding his own death. And the larger context is the belief that Jesus is God's Messiah. By the way, in the next chapter, John will add in chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. John invites the reader, John invites the listener. To repent. Of his or her sin. To trust the Lord Jesus. And look what it says. For these things were done that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. So what's, what's the issue? What does John suggest? Why should I believe? And John gives at least one reason. Fulfilled prophecy. Jesus will die. And by the way, we divide all things into two broad categories. I know what you're thinking. Italian people and people who wish they were. And that's usually how we divide things. But this time we're going to do it in two different broad categories. Things that can be broken. And things that can't be broken. 
The skin on the surface of Jesus' head can be broken when they press the crown into his skull. And his side can be perforated and torn. And his heart can be broken. And the thieves' legs can be broken. But the Word of God cannot be broken. As a matter of fact, in Numbers chapter 9, verse 12, it says, They shall leave none of it till morning, speaking of the Passover lamb, nor break one of his bones according to all the ordinances of the Passover. They shall keep it. The psalmist, through the Holy Spirit, wrote, He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And because not one of his, bro- one of his bones are broken, a Roman soldier will take a Roman spear and press it into the Savior's side. And Jesus sees in the death, John sees in the death of Jesus the fulfillment of another prophecy. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, where it says, they will look on Him whom they have pierced. As a matter of fact, if you just take a simple look of the life and the ministry of Jesus, be called out of Egypt, Hosea 11.1. 1. Be rejected by the brethren, Psalm 69.8. Rulers will take counsel against him, Psalm 21. He will be rejected as the capstone. He will enter the temple. He will call to those who aren't his people. The king will come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. He will be called the stone of stumbling. Upon his appearing, the deaf will hear and the blind will see. And the Jews will be given a light. There will be a new and an everlasting covenant. There will be a prophet like Moses. He will be hated without reason. He will come to do the will of God. He will be anointed by God. And just specifically concerning his death and resurrection, he will be the Passover sacrifice with no bone broken. He'll be hung on a tree as a curse. He will be accused of falsely by witnesses. He will be struck on the head. His hands and feet will be pierced. Psalm 22:16 He will be given gall and vinegar to drink Psalm 69:20 He will be beaten and spat upon Isaiah 50 verse 6 Now think about it Jesus According to Paul in Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 says, But when the fullness of the time came God sent his son born of a woman born under the law The Old Testament was written over a period of a thousand years, and it contains a minimum of 300 references. Some suggest as many as 400 references to the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, and the return of Jesus. Using the science of probability, we find the chances of just 48 of those prophecies being fulfilled in one person. To be one in ten, followed by... 157 zeros. Now, you may not understand that figure. Let me help you. Professor Emeritus of Science at Westmont College, Peter Stoner, calculated the probability of one man fulfilling the major prophecies concerning the Messiah. The estimates were worked out by 12 different classes of 600 college students. The students carefully weighed the factors, discussed each prophecy at length, examined the various circumstances that might indicate that men conspired together to have a self-fulfilling prophecy. They made their estimates conservative enough so that they would finally reach unanimous agreement even among the atheists and the skeptics and the cynics. Then Professor Stoner took their estimates and made them even more conservative. 
He encouraged them by submitting the figures to a committee of the American Scientific Association. And upon examination, they verified that his calculations were dependable and accurate in regard to the scientific material presented. For example, concerning Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where Micah prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Stoner and his students divided the average population of Bethlehem from the time of Micah to the present. They divided the figure by the population of the planet Earth at the same time. They concluded that the chance of one man being born in Bethlehem was two times eight to the two times 105 or rounded out about one in 300,000. And then after examining only eight prophecies, just eight, they conservatively estimated that the chance of one man fulfilling all eight prophecies was one in ten, followed by 17 zeros. And then Stoner gives this illustration. Imagine the entire state of Texas is covered with silver dollars two feet deep. The total number of silver dollars needed to cover the whole state is 10 to the 17th power. Now choose just one silver dollar. Mark it. Drop it from an airplane flying over the state. Thoroughly mix the silver dollars. And when that's done, send a blindfolded person. Tell him he can travel in whatever direction he wants. And then stoop down and pick up a dollar. The chances of that being the marked dollar is the same chances our government has of balancing the budget. No, that's not, that's not the point. Wait, different point. The chances of one person reaching down and collecting the marked silver dollar is the same as one person fulfilling just simply eight of these prophecies. Now, if I were to ask you a question, if I were to say, hey, look, I want you to invest in something, but the chances of it coming true is 10 followed by 17 zeros. Would any of you do it? Of course you wouldn't. You would be insane to do that. But of course, Jesus fulfills way more than just simply eight prophecies. In another calculation, Stoner uses 48 prophecies. Oh, even though he could have just as easily used 100 prophecies or 200 prophecies. But with just 48 prophecies, he now has a new estimate. It's 10, 1 in 10, followed by 157 zeros. But do you know how big that number is? Let me help you. How large is 10 followed by 157 zeros? Well, let's calculate. To illustrate, a silver dollar is way too large. I'm going to have to use an electron. Now remember, an electron is a very small object. It's smaller than an atom. It would take 2.5 times 1015, or 10 to the 15th power, laid side by side to add up to one inch of electrons. Okay? If we counted four electrons every second and we counted day and night, it would take us 19 million years to count just that one inch of electrons. But how many electrons would we have to count with 10 followed by 157 zeros? Imagine building a solid ball of electrons that would extend in every direction from the Earth. Six billion light years in every direction. Now, the distance in miles of just one light year is 6.4 trillion miles. That would be a big ball. But it still wouldn't be big enough to measure 10 
followed by 157 zeros. In order to do that, you would have to take that big ball of electrons measuring 6 billion light years across and then multiply it by 6 times 1028. And how big is that? It's the length of space required to store trillions and trillions and trillions of the same gigantic balls and more. In fact, the space required to store all of those would only begin to scratch the surface of the number of electrons that we need. Now, assuming you have some idea of the number of electrons we're talking about, imagine that you could get in a spaceship and you could fly in any direction for 14 billion years. And then select one of those electrons. That would be the same statistical probability of one person fulfilling only 48 of the prophecies. Why should you believe? John gives at least one reason. How do you explain one person fulfilling all of the prophecies that are ascribed to Jesus? So what does the death of Jesus accomplish? Roy Lauren writes, number one, The eternal purpose of God. Number two, the law. Number three, the sin question. Number four, the system of symbol and sacrifice. Number five, the unchallenged reign of Satan. And number six, the work of salvation. And that's just scratching the surface. You know, the Bible speaks of three great tearings that took place the day that Jesus died. Remember when he said, it is finished? The veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The heart of Jesus was torn. And another strange and wonderful thing happened. The earth itself was torn by a massive earthquake. And the Bible describes the graves of some of those who were dead, that they walked among the living. And the veil of the temple is torn so that you would have access to God. And the heart of Jesus is torn so that you would have access to God. That you could approach Him free, forgiven, unencumbered. And the bowels of the earth are torn so that even the dead come back to life. The rest of the chapter is going to draw our focus on the preparation of the body for burial in the garden tomb. But as amazing as these statistics are, there's something even more amazing. The English poet William Kuyper wrote, and I'm sure you know it, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, as vile as he, wash all my sins away. Here since by faith I saw the stream. Thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. 
dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. A sacrifice that forgives you and cleanses you and reconciles you. The missionary Hudson Taylor, with the last few moments of life left in his body, wrote with trembling, quote, I can only lie still in God's arms. I am so weak that I can hardly write. I cannot read my Bible. I cannot even pray. I can only lie still in God's arms like a little child and trust. There may come a day when you're unable to lift your hand. There may come a day when your eyes will no longer be able to see the letters on your Bible. And there may come a day when you cannot even open your mouth to pray. And that the only thing that you will be able to do is to simply lie in God's arms and trust Him. John writes, I wrote these things. Not so that you would remain skeptical and cynical and unbelieving. But so that you would believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. Lord, I pray for that person who in doubt and criticism and cynicism has pushed you away, who has pushed you away, who has not been searching for evidence, but who has been looking for one more excuse to reject you. And Lord, I pray that there will come a day where the excuses will run dry. And the emptiness and the guilt and the loneliness will begin to overwhelm. And that the quiet voice will whisper inside of each and every heart, won't you believe that Jesus Christ is my son and that he loves you and that he died for you? Won't you repent of your sin? Won't you turn from your sin and turn to the Savior and embrace His love and embrace His mercy and embrace the invitation of forgiveness? Lord, I pray that each person would hear the words of John. I wrote these things so that you would believe. And Heavenly Father, you know that person and you know their heart. Lord, you can speak only where you can speak and you can convict only where you can convict. And Lord, I know that only you can draw people by your Holy Spirit, but I pray that that's exactly what you would do with some. Is that you? Do you need to have a right relationship with God and you don't? Have you been living a life of disobedience, 
rebellion, cynicism, and doubt, and unbelief, and you know, you know, you know, you need to know Jesus. Just lift up your hand and I'll pray for you. It's easy to do. You can enter into life and love and friendship and relationship with God, but you have to abandon your sin and you have to abandon your unbelief and you must embrace the reality that there is a God who knows the beginning from the end. Won't you do it? Won't you trust Him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that the seed would be sown. Lord, I pray that it would take root. Lord, I pray that the sinner would be forgiven. And I pray that the saint would rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen.